Welcome to Heal. On today's episode, clinical psychologist Emily Stimson and I discuss the partnership between therapy and psychedelic medicine. In this episode, we explore the interrelationship between the access psychedelic medicine provides to our subconscious healing and the need for a compassionate therapeutic guide to support integration of this deep work into impacting our daily lives. Emily Stimson runs a private practice in New York. Her formal training includes the hospital models at Bellevue Hospital and the Brooklyn Veterans Affair Medical Center, postdoctoral fellowships in relational psychoanalysis, and certification in psychedelic integration and preparation from fluence. Her experience in plant medicine has been informed by the Shipibo tradition of Peru, and she works to blend the wisdom from these various models in order to help her patients access their inner healers. With psychedelic medicine on the rise in accessibility and popularity, integration has become almost a buzzword. But what does that really mean? And what does it take to have these profound and powerful, sometimes deeply challenging, mystical experiences be grounded into our lives in such a way as to create lasting change? The real work starts when you come back home. How do you bring back what seemed so clear in this beautiful retreat center? How do you bring that back to your own life? That's where the real transformation happens. We ask what it is to face our shadow selves and discuss how important it is to honor our defense mechanisms, not just make them wrong. Our bodies and our minds and our souls and all the different parts of ourselves have created these incredibly sophisticated and wise systems that may no longer serve us, but that they were our best attempt at trying to be intact and whole and manage a chaotic system. We look at the supportive role of plant medicine in accessing hard-to-reach parts of our internal experience. I think plant medicine is like dreams, like free association, like slips of the tongue. Plant medicine work can help us access really hard-to-reach parts of our internal experience. And we discuss the importance of acknowledging and reciprocating the gifts of the natural world as access to healing ourselves individually and as a people. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Marshall. Well, this is exciting. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I have Emily Stimson here, who has become an awesome friend of mine over this last year since our paths crossed. And I'm just really excited to have a very exploratory we were actually discussing before we hit record of like, we don't know where this conversation is going to take us, which is actually <laughs> my favorite episodes where we just end up in the most surprise, awesome places. So Emily, thank you mm-hmm. so much for being here. Really appreciate oh, you taking the time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I always say when I have patients who come and say, I don't have anything to talk about. I always get a glimmer in my eye and I always say, oh, that's my favorite sessions. See that's what awesome. arises. Exactly. Yeah. So some of what brought us together is a common, you know, study and exploration into plant medicine, which I always find funny saying plant medicine as an herbalist, (laughs) because like, I'm like that it's all plant medicine actually, but then it's culturally been in reference to a lot of specifically what I would call entheogens or the divine plant spirits that reside in what are commonly known as psychedelic plants and, you know, psilocybin and bufo, which actually isn't a plant, comes from a frog and, you know, ayahuasca and iboga. And there's many, many, many more. And 
What I'm really excited to talk to you about is that bridge between there's this whole world. I'm just going to speak to it of, of the underground psychedelic revolution that's happening right now where lots and lots of people are going for it with a commitment to heal, like with a commitment to actually not just have a, a peak experience, but to actually get in touch with how can they heal trauma? How can they unravel anxiety and depression? How can they start to work through just common everyday? It doesn't even have to be anything that's diagnosed. And me as a practitioner, and also as somebody who has done some of that work in my past, I get a little cringy of like, oh God, everyone's just like going rogue. Like there's not a lot of structure. <laughs> there's like, you know, and and that's where, you know, we're at work, the MAPS program, there's, there's a lot trying to get figured out of how do we create this in the most safe way. And you actually have done training. And I'm a, very interested to talk to you from the standpoint of, you know, being a clinical psychologist and your experience with private practice and where psychedelic plant medicine can actually start to lend itself into being a supportive partner. I don't know what words you want to use in, in this process of healing. And also I'd like to put an emphasis on how important it is to have partnership and clinical partnership and, you know, therapists and practitioners around you to support you in these in these journeys in this healing process. So that's my like hopes and intentions. We'll see where we go from there. So yeah, Emily, no, I'd absolutely. love to start with, just tell me a bit about your background and what kind of brought you to being, you know, like how did you end up as a clinical psychologist? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the origin story for so many therapists often is that there was something in their own growing up, either they played the role of psychologist or therapist or mediator, right? Or that there was a deep longing to understand either themselves or where they come from. And I think that getting a doctorate in just yourself, right? That that's oftentimes one of the wonderful byproducts of becoming a psychologist is that you really get to spend some deep work and time delving into your own history, into your own emotional experience. And that has been just such a always ever emerging process. And it has taken some turns. I started off with more of the traditional training. I did a training at Bellevue Hospital inpatient psych emergency room. I did training at the Brooklyn VA where there was a lot of work with vets and trauma. And that was a really powerful start and introduction to the human psyche was sort of like diving deep in into sort of the the most traumatic most severe mental processes and then i switched gears a bit i needed a break that was exhausting and i switched gears to go into more of the relational psychoanalytic realm and that is you know, if we think about Freud and then we just update it, you know, a lot of dream work, a lot of curiosity into the unconscious metaphors, looking at the defensive structures and, and really honoring them of how they protect all of us and help us live in a, in a world where we have a lot of things that we're grappling with. And then some shadow work. You know, I think Carl Jung really brought the shadow work into the psychoanalytic thoughts of what is it that we might be trying to hide from ourselves the parts of ourselves and how does that get in the way of how we interact with other people and that felt like a really nice professional home 
for a while and it still does. And that's the approach that I take when I work with clients is to try to bring a curiosity and openness. You know, if somebody comes and is struggling to not just look at, well, what's going on, diagnose it and to intervene and give a bunch of fixes, but to really open it up and to try to understand where have you come from and how is it that this is where you are in this moment and where do you want to be, right? And really building from there. So I think plant medicine work can really be a beautiful accompaniment to that work already. We're already working to try to deepen and get behind maybe the walls that we've erected in order to understand ourselves and live a much richer life. But I do think that in recent years in my own personal work, but also work with clients, I have felt that talk therapy is limited. And I know that there are some other modalities of therapy like EMDR and somatic work that aren't just talk therapy, but that by and large, we are limited to basically harnessing our brains in much of the work. And as we know, that's just part of who we are, the tip of the iceberg, really, of where we, how we understand ourselves, where we feel, what our bodies are holding. And so I think plant medicine is like dreams, like free association, like slips of the tongue. Plant medicine work can help us access really hard to reach parts of our internal experience mic drop we could just like <laughs> i mean we get to keep talking which is awesome but yeah. it's just so so rich so beautiful and there's so many things i actually really love because we're in new territory for me some of the things you're referencing about the psychoanalytical work and relationship relational work is really like this is a new edge. I've I've worked with an EMDR therapist this last year, which has been hugely helpful. So much of my own personal mental emotional work has come from ontology and transformational education, which is so interesting because you're completely limited by what your brain can think up. Like you can create an association of when I was five, my sister stole my crayons. And in that moment, I felt abandoned and alone. And so then now that's why I hold on and hoard everything. And I don't ever want anyone to give. And actually the real example of my sister and I, just to make it totally on the court, my sister's five years older than me. And like a proper, correct older sister, she would sometimes like take cookies off my plate, right? And I would be coloring with blue and she would then want to color with blue. And, and she did, right? Like this is normal kid stuff. Well, it's now this thing where like I got really upset about it at one point when I got older enough for her to be like feel shame. And so now still she'll come to my house and she asked me, is it okay if I have some of your hummus? And I'm like, Elizabeth, I love you. You you have free reign of everything in my refrigerator. But that was like one of our like childhood moments that caused some scarring that we've un untangled, you know. But I can only go through that to whatever extent my current conscious brain is willing to look at it, which is mostly embedded in the things I'm willing to admit about myself, the things I'm willing to see or even capable of seeing, nothing that my subconscious is hiding from me or protecting me from or any of that. And my own personal experience that has been quite a bit that's come up through plant medicine is like, oh, I wouldn't have looked at this situation quite like that until it was presented to me in 
this visual landscape. And it's interesting to me what you're saying about dream work and slips of the tongue, because I haven't played in that area very much, but I can definitely see examples, particularly the slips of the tongue. I did notice like I've dealt with chronic constipation my whole life and I used to call myself anal retentive. <laughs> I was like, I should stop saying that. <laughs> like these two things are related to each other mm -hmm. and you know, it's really powerful. So just that alone. And, and I'd love to actually follow up specifically because there's so many pieces, but can you say a bit more about honoring our defensiveness or our defenses? Like I think instead it's so common mm -hmm. to just make them wrong. Right. Absolutely. And I think that in the early, in the early years of particularly psychoanalytic work, but even I would say with CBT that, and I think that if we can at first just say, wow, right. Talk about an inner healer, right. That that was the best patchwork that we could do at six months, three years, eight years old, 15 years old. That is pretty amazing, you know, and then to say, okay, what about that? has worked? What about that feels like it's no longer serving us? And how would you like to be in the world, right? That maybe there was a part of you in the crayon scenario, right, where you did have to be a bit more territorial, right? Because the fear is, is that if I'm not territorial, people are just going to come and take my stuff. And then I'm going to be left with nothing, right? And that is a very self-loving, self-protective consideration, but it also, right, in life can translate, right, if you're carrying that through, it can translate to being, you know, conflictual with other people, it can, right, cause you to maybe be suspicious of other people and their intentions, right, to be a bit hoardy, you know, and so of like recognizing, okay, maybe I'm not, you know, this five-year-old who only has three crayons, and if they're taken away, I have none, you know, do I have a sense of abundance, right, do I have more to give, can I play with boundaries where we this is a negotiation of like oh do you want some of my crayons sure which ones well these are the ones that I want or how about I lend them to you and you give them back right that there is much much more evolved ways of managing these different things now that you're an adult and have so many more tools I think it's like being able to explore to have the conversations to even look and update them you know to, to slow down enough right. to stop and notice and then look for what what is the update mm -hmm. and i think to your point of you know we don't always know what we need to be looking at and there might be a part of us that's actively trying to keep us from looking at that and there you know there's this saying in the plant medicine community of like it will take you where you need to go that you can go in with one intention right if i want to look at why i'm you know not lovable and it's going to take you someplace else if it feels like you need to go to that place either first or you know and it's sort of ruthless depending on which molecule you're working with of how it really asks you to show up in a way that I think that we are not used to and we have again have designed a system that is allowing for us to not have to show up and look at these incredibly difficult things um, so there, there's something yeah, ruthless about the plant medicine work that can make it really harrowing and really hard, which is where I think when it's done in conjunction with therapy, where there's a holding space of someone saying, okay, let's look at where it took you, where it asked you to go. You can do some really profound work. 
So then let's talk a little bit about what led you to take on training and what training you've done in that world of bringing psychedelic medicine into your therapy practice. Mm -hmm. Well, it did come from first a personal journey. I, I had and still have, you know, this therapist that I've been working with for a decade and a half, you know, from New York City, who's just been such a, an incredible guide throughout my adulthood. And I was in a place in my own life a few years back where there was, I was grappling with loss and a sense of that the path had shifted. The path that I thought that I had been on was no longer the path that I was going to be. And that was hugely destabilizing. And it just kept bringing, I felt myself looping. It kept bringing me back to these loops that I had been bringing into her for a decade that I just could not seem to get out of. And so she had suggested that perhaps maybe ayahuasca in particular could help me look at those loops and to figure out where, why was I keeping myself in this really constricted space? And was there another way to approach my, my attitude towards life and my relationship to myself? And that was transformative. And so as I was experiencing firsthand how it did, and this is also another sort of inside inside joke with plant medicine, right? That it can do 20 years of therapy in a week, right? Which, you know, not to be clear, I mean, you're not fixed after a week. There's a lot of work and you can do a lifetime of this work still. (laughs) But it really, it did unstuck me, unstick me in a way that, for a decade or so, I had been unable to unstick myself. And there was a truth and a knowingness. You know, I go back and look at journal entries from before I went on these retreats. And I had been saying some of these things. And it's funny because in my memory, my mind now, I I think that those things emerged in the plant medicine work. And I look and I had already been carrying and knowing these things about myself, but I had been unable to know them as a possible truth until I did the medicine work. And and so then when I was sitting with clients, it felt almost impossible after that experience to not to not try to find a way of incorporating this, that this was such a powerful tool. Now I'm limited by my scope of practice, right? By my license in New York, by federal laws in the United States. I am not interested in being in the underground, even though I think there are some really important uses for people who are in the underground. And so the training that I chose to do through a really wonderful New York-based group was about how to do this above board with my license. And it's to prepare people for going into these sorts of experiences so that they can have the safest and most fruitful experience possible. And even more importantly, to receive them after they've come out of their experiences and to start integrating what they've learned into their everyday life, you know, to, to leave life for a few hours or for a week, right. And have this profound experience. That's all well and good, but the real work starts when you come back home. And I think a lot of folks, that's really hard. How do you bring back what seemed so clear you know, in the mountains of Peru or in this beautiful retreat center, you know, in British Columbia, 
how do you bring that back to your own life? And that's where I think, you know, that that's where the real transformation happens. And so that's what I've been switching to in my practice. And I would say that it's still a, a minority of patients that are actively doing psychedelic work, but that I approach all of my sessions now from this framework. Even if someone's not actually doing psychedelic work, I feel like I'm doing and bringing that sort of energy and curiosity and that things start emerging in client sessions, even if they have absolutely no idea that I have this background and they haven't you know, touched anything in their life, we're somehow still in the psychedelic space. I think intention is so huge in that. And, and it's, it's my recent inquiry and exploration, having just returned from my own retreat experience in Peru, which was one of the most profound yet, is how the psychedelic plants offer us a gateway into a spirit world. And I'm just starting to actually engage with that language. You know, for much of my exploration over the last several years, I, like I think many people, were kind of in that the psychedelic experience was the destination. That that was it. And I now I'm starting to recognize I literally spent years standing on the doorway, just hanging out in the doorway, like studying everything about. And the doorway was incredible. Like it was like huge, profound experiences. And I'm just now starting to recognize that that was a doorway into worlds and worlds and worlds that meditation and breathing and intentionality and certain type of fasting. And there's all sorts of different accesses into that realm. Very, very low dose microdose journeying with Western herbal plants. That's just come into my realm of understanding. I was studying with a herbalist this summer, 45 years. She's a registered nurse who went into herbalism, grows her own herbs, makes her own medicine. And she was talking about journeying with lobelia and violet and ginger, you know, like that you can journey with any, you can like your kitchen cabinet, you can connect to the spirit of that plant and learn from it and actually be intentional about free association and letting your mind just kind of open up into these quote journey realms and kind of dropping yourself into a meditative state that can actually access like really deep and profound wisdom where you can commune and talk with the plants and they can share with you what they're good for and what they're used for and how to work with them and what they don't like when you, you know, like all of these aspects. And I've just started to discover that realm. So I can completely get how even with clients and patients of yours who are not necessarily specifically engaging with those molecules, with those specific, you know, plant energies, there's an intentionality that we get to bring into our work. And there's an element of our relationship with those spirit beings that actually now can like live through us as healers and practitioners and clinicians, you know, in our own way. Cause I, I similarly, you know, I don't do anything in my practice at all related to psychedelic medicine, but I can see the, the inquiries that I'm in, the kind of questions that I ask and the way that I engage with people with the unfolding process is, you know, very informed by what I've learned through that journey work. Absolutely. And that they are, it's sort of like a, a secondary high. What is it called when you, I don't know, someone's been smoking pot. The contact you, right? high. Like yeah. Secondhand contact yeah. high, right? Right. That, that your essence, right, is engaged in this. And so if someone is sitting in your presence, 
what are they picking up from you on a molecular level, right? Of your own sense of perhaps calm or connectedness, right? That so much of therapy sort of draws upon attachment work of co-regulation, right? Like how a mother and a baby are co-regulating or co-dysregulating depending on what's right happening. But that if, you know, if a baby's crying and the mother gets further dysregulated, right? It just further dysregulates the child and it just escalates from there. But if the mother is really conscientious of her own breathing and her own sense of calm and safety, it's going to eventually bring the baby into that you know, moderated zone of arousal. And I think that that's what we do just in human connection, right? We can either escalate each other and just trigger each other, right? And anxiety is so contagious. Or if someone comes into our room and we are able to touch base with our own roots, our own grounding, that gives them an anchoring point to to connect to. And, you know, I remember there was one client who was not engaging at all in the psychedelic work, but I suggested even if they're just having a moment of real panic of finding a really big tree that they know has been there, right, for decades, right, and those roots are really strong to the ground, and of just leaning up against the tree and of letting the tree's solidity both hold them, but also maybe absorb some of their energy, what they're needing to just offload, you know, the tree taking in, taking on their pain, their fear, their agitation. And that really spoke to them. And I never in a million years would have even thought of that idea had I not been pursuing in that moment, you know, and that my own relationship to nature, my own relationship, like you're saying, to very spiritual aspects of energy. It's been coming up in some of the the fields of conversations around me that some people are saying that literally what is required of us as a human species to get through what we're dealing with politically, socially, climate restoration, our whole overconsumption that that we produce things that are trash, that 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 it's not a full cycle, that we actually only produce things that produce things for somebody else that becomes something else that becomes something else. Like that's how it always was in nature is, you know, one animal's feces is another animal's food and it worked really well. And we have changed a lot of that, or at least it's a longer term game than our planet can sustain. And the conversations that have been coming up is this, this theme of it will actually be when we reconnect with nature at a profound and deep level and we actually honor the relationships with plants and the relationships with animals. And, you know, I was a vegetarian until I was 25. I was raised in a very, um, you know, alternatively minded household under mostly Eastern philosophy and Buddhist, you know, teachings. And it it had never gone beyond the superficial of like, oh, I honor the, the animals because I think they're cute. And like, I like animals, you know, and I honor the plants because they're out there and they're pretty. But like, I had not, I just now I'm starting. And so I don't have a lot. It's like my language is hard because this is a new territory for me is, is relationally connecting with the plants. And one of the concepts I was talked a lot about in Peru when I was down there was reciprocity. And in reciprocity is not just taking, 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 taking. Like, I mean, 
I've had a gratitude practice around the food that I eat. And a lot of it has been like, thank you for the people that harvested it. And thank you for the people that planted it. And thank you for the people that trucked it. And thank you for the people that put it on the grocery store shelves and like that. And there was a kind of like, oh yeah. And thank you for the plants, you know, but like it was this superficial versus recognizing like, oh my God, like, thank you, potato, like the plant spirit potato for being potato. This is weird even coming out of my mouth because it's so like, but there is something there of, of what I've been blind to, what I haven't even begun to recognize all of these plants that are giving us oxygen, all of these plants that are giving us medicine, all of these plants that are cleaning up our environment, that are holding the dirt together, that are maintaining the humidity, that are, you know, all of these things that happen to have our lives work every single day. And I don't really think I've actually stopped to acknowledge, like, what can I give back to them? Thank you is great. But like, literally, what can I give back in exchange the same way I would if like there was a person in my life who had been giving and giving and giving and giving to me and I just did never even acknowledge like, what do you need? What do you want back from me? And I think this is a huge conversation of like, what does it actually look like for us to actually be fully honoring and in relationship with nature, like embedding ourselves back into that loop? And I can see that's been a theme that's come out of a lot of people's work with plant medicine is that that relationship is broken is undeniable after you come out of plant medicine. Like it's one of the blind spots a lot of people come to is recognizing how blind they've been to this natural world that is giving us so much that we've just even unwittingly, and I would have called myself an environmentalist and conscious of that. And yet so little consciousness compared to what's just starting to crack open for me. Yeah. And what you were helping me think about was that that's from a Mother Earth standpoint. And then when we think of like the individual standpoint of like, what is it that we're asking from our bodies just to get through each day, right? What is it that our bodies have continuously tried to metabolize or hold and shield us from? And that, you know, when people are perhaps finding themselves getting sick, right? Is that their body's way of saying, you know, I need to take a moment, right? I've been doing so much for you and now you need to give me a week to recuperate. And then what is it in terms of humanity of all the different people that are allowing for us to live in the way that we're living that are so invisible to us, right? And just reconnecting to humanity. So I think right on every single level, like from the molecular level and the nature level, Right. And the food that we're t- in the air that we're breathing and all of the people and all of our own sacrifices. It, there's an awakening, right? That, that that once you start looking at this, right, you are left with the decision of do I put the blinders back on? Right. Or do I continue to explore all this and acknowledge it? And that isn't an easy task, especially when we're busy, especially when it feels like it can be overwhelming and enormous at times. But I think that being able to even just sit with that and even just acknowledge maybe if this is feeling overwhelming or this is feeling enormous, but I'm still going to engage with it or I'm still going to acknowledge or look at it. That brings me to your experience with 
maybe yourself, maybe your your clients or patients that you've worked with, you know, there's a a conversation, especially for us Westerners, we like things to feel good <laughs> and be positive. And, you know, that conversation of the bad trip, which when I'm engaging with plant medicine from a ceremonial and healing context, generally what we say is there is no such thing as a bad trip, right? It's all mm -hmm. information. It's all healing. But experientially, there can be some pretty dark, pretty challenging, long nights that can happen in ceremony work. And I think that's one of the places where, you know, that's where it kind of breaks my heart when people don't have therapeutic partnerships for integration of that afterwards. I'd love for you to speak to some of like what you see about that or how you can help people reframe, or maybe it's not even about reframing because that's the other thing is we don't have to spin everything into the positive. It's just like being with and working with what's there. So how does that show up for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, bad trip to me is reminiscent of people who are using these uh, recreationally which there's nothing wrong with that. I'm trying to remember who it was who said that recreation is recreation. I mean, there's still mm. a creative and connective aspect to it, right? But that where they go to a rave or they go to a party, right? And they didn't have the fun blast that they were hoping to have, right? That it turned dark really quickly. And I think that when you're going into these spaces from a healing and a therapeutic intention, which is different than perhaps, you know, taking LSD and going to a rave, which has its, a different intention to it. But of going in and of saying, I want to, I want to heal, right? That then there's this sense of there is healing regardless of the qualitative feeling of the journey. And if the journey is particularly harrowing and really dark and really upsetting, or even if it's muted and mild and disappointing, right? That there's a lot of expectation that something profound is going to happen you know, and a lot of times people walk away being like, was that it? You know, and of being able to hold their disappointment that it wasn't what they were expecting it to be. And I like your distinction of reframing it not into something positive, but into something useful, right? Of what is it to be disappointed? What is the history and role of disappointment? How has this person felt disappointed in other times in their life that this might be illuminating for them? What are the other times that they feel like they were really hoping for something and it was different? Or what were they perhaps invited to see that was what that they have spent a lifetime, right, trying to not see? And it was a very, very scary, upsetting, difficult experience. How do they make meaning of that? How do they sit with maybe a lot of grief and a lot of pain that arose that don't have easy answers? or don't have easy fixes, but that perhaps just need to be heard and held. And I, like you said, I think that if you leave an experience like that and just either try to just throw it away of, oh, that was a really hard, crappy night versus, wow, that was so painful. And what might I learn from it? That gives somebody a whole new way in and a whole new way to bring that experience forward. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that we talked a lot about in my last retreat was uh, there was a quote that, that feeling is healing. 
and that it's about having better feelings, not feeling better. And often we were encouraged and coached to keep dropping the narratives that we wanted to assign to everything, all the meaning in the story we wanted to add to it. And they just kept having us go back to what was the experience? What was the experience? What was the experience? What was the experience? And, you know, I think that shows up in EMDR and I think that shows up in, I mean, literally somatic re-experiencing work. There's, there's an edge that we're working out of recognizing how what I see is is we are as human beings these incredibly immensely deeply feeling p- beings, and I think we're just coming into a time period where there's more willingness and acceptance to actually say that we do deeply feel. Like there's, I've always been someone that has had the conversation of being a high sensitive or someone who's you know highly empathetic, and I feel a lot and I feel a lot for other people and. You know, and I think that there are some people that that might be more present in their consciousness, but I would go so far as to say that we are all high sensitives and we are all ultimately empathetic. There's just different levels of numbing or disassociation or non-existent for cultural conversations for any of that, you know, and so through my psychedelic healing work, one of the pieces has been a greater and greater capacity to feel things I haven't been willing to feel. And that the narrative and the story has been less important. Sometimes the insights come and they roll right out of it. But that what's most important is to stay with the feeling, which a lot of my insights and narrative is because as soon as I start talking about it, I can get out of the feeling. Like it's one of my tricks, you know, like, oh, I don't have to feel this anymore. Let me let me analyze it. Let me let me think about it a whole lot. And then I don't have to I can hold it out here instead of continue to feel it in my body. And I'm curious for you in your work, how you've seen that show up of, I don't know if it's the word is embodiment or that, but that connection into our emotional selves in this process of healing. Mm -hmm. I think that for a lot of people, it's about helping them maintain enough of a regulated state while they're deeply feeling, right? That to feel deeply and to feel all sorts of very strong emotions doesn't have to mean that we're dysregulated. And so of helping people trust, feel safe, and tolerate those feelings, right? And to be able to sit with them in a way that isn't just all these five alarm bells going off that is going to then bring the dissociation and the numbing, right? And all the defensive structures. And so I think the the feeling is healing is, and we love our sayings, right? But that it's a great reminder that like that that alone is so important is to be able to find a way to feel and not immediately race to intellectualization or race to shutting it down right or fixing it right or an action step and that is, i think is very different from how a lot of people have been taught either right? Their parents, they would fall down and skin their knee and their parents would be like, oh, don't cry. You're fine. You're fine. Right. Rather than being able to sit with them and say, oh gosh, right. That was really surprising. Or, oh, you really hurt your knee, didn't you? And, you know, and having a moment to just acknowledge what has happened before jumping into what now. Right. And so we, as a Western culture have been completely conditioned to try to optimize, to try to get better, 
um, and that there's value in being able to just identify and sit with, and again, this word honor, right? Honor whatever it is that we're feeling without feeling then the added like, oh, I, I'm feeling guilt or I'm feeling shame or I'm feel- I shouldn't be feeling this way or I need to fix it. And I also think that this is maybe where ethics come in too, of that there are now just infinite number of ways of being able to find retreat centers and find places to do this and solo tripping or group tripping, whatever. And that, that while someone is doing, doing this either actually in, in the space of plant medicine or doing the work afterwards, right. That like, it is a cracking open, right. And that we are each so sensitive and vulnerable in this process and to be really aware of our own safety and the competence and the ethics of those around us and what are we absorbing and what are we taking in while we're cracked wide open and sort of like sponges you know there's this idea of like the neuroplastic window right of that if we take one of these substances that our neuroplasticity opens up and we're able to make new pathways and it's this really amazing flexibility and opening for change but it also in those moments right is a real vulnerability of what are we laying down and of being really careful right with real care towards ourselves of what are we exposing ourselves to while we're rewriting some pathways yeah this last retreat massively elevated my relationship to preparation and integration and what that really means. I mean, there was a solid container of intention and starting to restrict things. You know, a lot of times the emphasis is kind of focused on like, oh my God, I got to get off sugar and caffeine and like some of these things that, you know, I've been eating normally. And that's an important part. And there is some real biochemistry to that, but there's also a lot of ritual to that of starting to sacrifice and slow down and bring intention. And and the way the shamans talked about it in Peru was like, that is part of you paying your respects to the plant, your willingness to sacrifice and your willingness to actually lay down some of your comforts in order to accept their wisdom and participate in that way. And so there was a month beforehand, there was two weeks in Peru and then really a solid month afterwards. And I can see so many holes and things I could have done so much better <laughs> and like still given myself even more spaciousness in that exact conversation. And and what I love too is that there's a conversation of that the integration is really a six month to 12 month process. And I also see that show up a lot and and I'm not knocking anyone, like at least the conversations of integration are starting to bubble up more. There's more discussion about what is it in, in some of these underground groups, what does it look like to integrate? What is integration? And a lot of times like there'll be a sharing circle 24 hours after or even 12 hours after and they're like, integration, we did that, check the box. And I'm like, haven't even begun, you know, like I'm actually engaging with my first integration call a month after leaving Peru because they're like, you still have the container of the plants and the diet and everything that you're doing in the exit for the first month. You don't even really need to have, quote, an integration conversation until you're far enough away that it's like 
starts to become a distant memory and it's not so, you, you know, you're not as connected to the actual peak experience of it or whatever experiences we had. And that was such a huge illumination for me of recognizing, you know, what I thought was an integration game <laughs> is like tiny compared to what I'm taking on now. And the bigness of all of this and and like recognizing, I mean, I don't discredit the work I've done up till now. I've just had a huge up-leveling in my reverence and my respect and, you know, really taking a look at how much wisdom there is to unpack from even a potentially very seemingly small experience that you could go to work on for a long, long, long time and get every drop of goodness and every piece of healing out of these experiences you know, over much longer periods of time. I'm very curious to see as MDMA and psilocybin kind of reach a level of being prescribable, what structures we put in place. Because one of the things, and not to open a whole nother topic at the end of our conversation here, but, you know, I've struggled with around ketamine therapy is when it's literally just been prescribed. I mean, I've had clients who were already clients of mine and they've worked with somebody and they just wrote them a prescription and they could do it at home and they were doing, you know, oral ketamine by themselves with no container, no conversation of preparation. They weren't required to have an active relationship with a therapist. And I mean, my hair was on fire. I was like, how is this? Okay, great. You know, and I think there's a lot in the world of ethics for us to sort out. What does it look like to really take care of people, A, keep them safe, but then also maximize the healing benefit and opportunity that's there. And what does that look like to create in a clinical setting and in a therapeutic setting? And we have a lot more questions than we have answers for sure, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's fascinating. It is. And I think you're bringing up questions of sustainability and access, right? Of that in an ideal world, everybody would be able to go to a two week or a one week retreat and just have that be their only focus or that they would be able to take some sort of medicine and then have unlimited sessions afterwards in order to understand it. Right. And that, that just simply is not a reasonable thing for a lot of people. And so I think that, you know, that we are in an interesting time where this is all just starting to form and there are going to be so many different pathways and models that emerge from this. Some that, may i think i think that that time is going to tell right and that there are some really concerning things that are coming from all of this and that there are some really good conscientious actors in all of this yeah but that really does seem like another episode uh-huh. <laughs> i have a great habit of being like and then in our next edition of this conversation <laughs> yeah but i yeah. think that right this is a parallel process to the to what we're speaking of is like that this is things emerge and this is expanding right and expansive and the fact that you and i can have this conversation for half an hour and to feel as if it's inviting more questions and more things to talk about right it, that it's just such a, a growing wonderful process yeah yep expansion has definitely been a huge component of my working with these sacred plants for sure. So I think that's a really great untied up in a bow place for us to leave it because <laughs> that's like very parallel. It's awesome. And Emily, I just really appreciate 
your knowledge and your wisdom and your care and sharing that here and being in this exploration. And, you know, heal is all about continuing to bend our brains around what does it look like to heal? What does it mean to heal? How do we go about that? How do we take care of each other? And this is one of those areas where there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of new excitement. And I think it's worth continually being in the inquiry and the dialogue about as we are working it out. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me, Sarah. And thank you for having this podcast. I think it's such a wonderful way to be having these conversations. So thank you. Right. Until we can do it again. Yep. Thank you to today's guest, Emily Stimson, for her grace and elegance. For all the resources of today's show, visit sarahmarshallnd.com slash podcast. Special thanks to our music composer, Roddy Nickport, and our editor, Kendra Sanchez. And as always, thank you for being here. We'll see you next time.